And we are back with episode 82 of your favourite film podcast, I hope, The Film File. The film show for film geeks, by film geeks. And now we play our theme tune. So, Andy, we are back with another film file and another early morning of, as of this recording. And we're both quite bleary-eyed and uh, I've not had any tea yet, so anything can happen at this stage. Uh, uh, madness ensues. Uh, how are you? Well, I know very, the answer to that very one. very <laughs> tired. <laughs> I mean, I, I know I say this quite frequently that I'm really like tired and struggling to find time. But this week we've got like uh, one of the management teams on holiday and another one's just signed off ill for a couple of weeks, which has put a strain on the rest of us so that I haven't got a day off. Oh, no. I'm working every day. And it's good. That, uh, I mean, it's great that I enjoy my job because otherwise this would be a chore. Um, but it, it is having a bit of a negative side effect on me that I'm not sleeping because it's too warm. And then I'm waking up and having to record a podcast and then get it edited and then go to work tonight and then get up tomorrow and do exactly the same. So it... It's a constant momentum. I've got no spare time to do things. And yet I'm still finding time to watch films and I don't know how I'm doing it. <laughs> I don't know how you're doing it. <laughs> Have you found that cerebral plug-in, you know, where you just plug it straight into the back of uh, uh, back of your head and you're just seeing the films directly pumped into your brain? Because I think our, at the moment, that's how I can see films. The sooner I get a William Gibson-style net, net, network interface into my spinal column, Flicks the works. better. There you go. <laughs> But um, yeah, I, I try to see as many films as I can, but I do have limits um, on what I'll see. And this past week, I've seen there's one critic that uh, he's a, he's not a paid critic. He's just like us hobbyists to enjoy it and like to share our passion with anyone who wants to listen. And he's been moaning online that, oh, no, there's another Paw Patrol movie out this week uh, and I've got to watch it. And I've had this conversation with him last year when he was doing something similar on something else, which is clearly not for him. It's designed for a four-year-old Paw Patrol. It's not designed for an adult to watch. So I was like, why Why do you have to watch it? I was like, well, because I like to see everything that's released. Okay. And th- last year, I turned around to him and went, so why didn't, you revolt, why didn't you go and review Chicago 7? The response, that's on streaming, so I don't review streaming. I only review <laughs> things on the big screen. To which my response was, yeah, but we showed it on the big screen for two weeks before it came out on streaming. So why didn't you review it? And the response was, and I'm not going to say which major chain it was in the UK. It's not showing at this major chain, which is the only cinema I go to. Right. And it's just like, so your stipulation is it has to be shown at this major chain who don't get any of the indie films, don't get any of the arts, don't get the documentaries. They just get the mainstream. And Paw Patrol. Let's not forget. And Paw Patrol. And he's just like, yeah, yeah. And I was like, well, if you've got such stupid stipulations for what films you can see, it can't be on streaming to be reviewed. He, he won't even he does a top ten list at the end of the year, and he won't include anything from streaming on there, which I, as you can imagine for last year made for an interesting top ten list. Uh, he's got these stipulations, and yet he won't remove off a stipulation of if a film's aimed squarely at a four year old that I'm not going to enjoy, maybe I shouldn't watch it, which suggests to me that he's deliberately going to see this film in order to deliberately rip it to shreds and hate on it. And I think, where's the pleasure in that? Where's the pleasure in deliberately over-criticising a film aimed at toddlers, which is being pitched to many toddlers as their first cinema experience? It's not for an adult to watch. (laughs) I'm not going to watch. We're not going to review Paw Patrol on this show, because why would we? 
it's not for us. And I'm sure that our audience listening at home are not not that enamored with it themselves. You might have kids that you need to take to see it because I understand that that pain. Your kid wants to yeah, see yeah. something. You don't. You have to go along. But you kind of doze off. You let them enjoy the film. You doze off during it. You're not going to watch the film. So we're not going to do that. I, we, we, we do review everything that catches our eye. And sometimes we give films a chance that don't initially appeal to us. And at times we find that there's ones that surprise us. We think, oh, I'm probably not going to enjoy this. Oh, wow. Enjoyed that more than expected. And on that note, two of the reviews today fit that bill perfectly. Yes. Well, I, I agree. I don't think you should ever set yourself fast and hard rules of what you have to do. When I had a, a regular uh, BBC programme, because it wasn't a film programme per se, it was reviewing what was out in the cinemas. There was no point in for, for the audience, and it, and it is a case, know your audience. You know, there was yeah. no point for, for the audience that I, I, I broadcast to to include sort of uh, um, a lot of indie films, even though I would love to, they weren't, they weren't our, uh, they weren't our target market. So, you know, had a tendency to review the, the, the bigger names and, uh, you know, the occasional surprise, but there was no point in me going down sort of the arts route because it's like my producer would have turned around and going, yeah, it's not our crowd. And, and they were right. You know your audience and don't set yourself hard and fast rules. Anyway, I think a lot of people tuning in, to hear us gripe about the rest of the world, especially when we do an early morning recording. <laughs> in today's... I have to have my soapbox moments yeah, you on do. the early you shows. Do. You've, not had, you've not had your coffee yet. You're fine. <laughs> so here we are with another show. And coming up on today's show, we have reviews. We'll be talking about Vivo, which we've both seen. And I will be talking about three films, The Swarm, The Dry... And profile. We'll be having our deep dive this week into another all-time classic, and it seems to be that we're just doing our top ten at the moment, <laughs> and, it, and that's just how the way it's it's fallen. But we'll be doing our deep dive into Back to the Future. Genuinely, my favourite film of the eighties. It's what I consider the definitive eighties film. Looking forward to talking about that. We have a special interview with Adam Nelson about fundraising for his new film. The Maya, and of course, no episode would be complete without Andy's trawling of the World Wide Web to bring you the segment that is known internationally and respectfully as the news. So we can't start the news this week without having to talk about The Suicide Squad. Now, we reviewed it the other week, gave it a genuinely favourable review. Critically, it's done very well, even to non-comic book fans who've enjoyed it tremendously. However, disappointingly, it has bombed in the US um, box office. And um, I think when we're going to be talking about this film, some of that is going to be an analysis as to why we think the film hasn't, hasn't found a market. So, Andy, how well did it do? Right, so The Suicide Squad opened this weekend in the US to $26.5 million, which when you consider that the first Suicide Squad film a few years ago opened for the same period at $133.7 million. Something's not right there. Um, it's, it was still the top film for the weekend, but I think that's reflective on what the industry is looking like at this point in time, particularly in the US where they're going through the Delta Wave variant um, spreading crazily and cinemas starting to 
closed down again in some yeah. places. Now, a certain fan base out there have claimed that this is part of their boycott of DC films until they restore some nonsense, and they're trying to claim victory. They're trying to claim victory because they're passionate about DC, but only if it's specific DC. But it's clearly not that. They're just jumping on it to try to look good when they're a very minor, minor group of people. They're not as prolific as they think they are. But this this is the norm now for big releases. We've seen it over the past few weeks that, that we're not seeing the huge amount of box office takings that you would generally get on tentpole releases. Yeah, we saw it with Black Widow. We've seen it across the board so far, um, even though Black Widow opened to a much bigger uh, um, opening weekend, it had a huge drop off. Now, that says yeah. to me that there is something wrong in Denmark at the moment because there is yeah. there is a trend that is absolutely unusual and absolutely specific to the world that we're living in for me. I think there there are other problems involved with uh, um, the Suicide Squad. I think those problems are that it was poorly promoted outside of the comic book, uh, the comic book world, comic book fandom. Yeah, by calling it the Suicide Squad, didn't give it too much of, of an identity that separated it from from the previous film. Now, and what was the what was it to the previous film? Was it a sequel? Was it a reboot? Um, I, I think I think the marketing was at fault. I also think that outside of film fans, James Gunn doesn't mean anything. It's not a Christopher Nolan. He's not. Um, he's not a Steven Spielberg. He's beloved amongst us for for the work he does. Yeah. But but to try and 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 put James Gunn. The name on it because of, because of Guardians clearly doesn't mean much to the average film punter. Yeah, I mean, I've I've said to colleagues at work over the past few months, like, oh yeah, the Suicide Squad, looking forward to it. James Gunn can do no wrong, and they kind of look at me going, uh, "What's he done before?" It's like uh, Guardians of the Galaxy. Oh yeah, I know that film. They know the films, they don't know the director, and the fact that the marketing has always been around like James Gunn's Suicide Squad, James Gunn, James Gunn. It was marketed completely wrong. It was a hard R as well, which always find um, a bit of a struggle. And in the US, it went straight onto HBO Max for paid subscribers. And that's now, whereas, the ticket for me. Whereas the Disney releases, which didn't do great themselves, had the split release onto the Disney premium service. The fact is that the normal subscribers had to pay additionally to get access to the film. Gives it a different credence whereas this one anyone who's paying for hbo max which is a significant amount of people in the u.s subscribe to hbo max what was the point of them going and paying to see it elsewhere they're getting it for free uh, this gets into a debate around day and date releases high budget films underperforming at the box office some are saying that day and date rental is actually the way forward but so far the little reports that we have on the actual streaming revenue suggests that no matter how good they're doing, and they're saying that this was the second best release on HBO Max after Mortal Kombat, so it's done well for the service, yeah. but the money that they get from that is going to be a far cry away from what the cinemas would have taken if they were exclusive releases, and what these kind of large budget productions need in order to break even. I mean, Suicide Squad cost $185 million 
on production costs, throw in your marketing costs, and it's going to need at least 600 million before it breaks yeah. even. It, it's it's going to struggle. It's not going to do it. It's a loss. I mean, some people have argued back that, well, if streaming isn't making money, how come Netflix are putting 200 million into films that they're just going to release on streaming? And yet it's out there and it's well known that Netflix is constantly running in debt. They're playing the long game. They're building up a profile. They're building up a, a back catalogue. And as we discussed last week as part of the news, they've definitely got their eyes on cinema at some point because they've been discussing with Nolan recently. And yeah. Nolan's not going to go straight to streaming. So they're playing the long game and they're getting ready to make that jump. They're happy to work in debt until they can get to that stage where they can go, and now we're everywhere. Boom. If day and date was to continue, big blockbusters are going to have to be a thing of the past. They're going to have to cut the budgets down and start doing sub 100 million yep. films because they can be done. And it doesn't mean that the effects have to be any weaker because we've seen effects driven films for 80 million. We've seen really solid effects driven films for 80 million. The big budgets that go on films tend to go to the big name stars. And that's where the impact is going to hit in the industry. The big name stars are going to have to take less of an initial payment and start paying more and start going more for the back end deals to subsidize the rest of their wage. I'm going to throw something into the mix now, which um, is, is purely for debate reasons, not to create controversy. But looking back through the numbers of the last DC releases, uh, especially as uh, as we've got HBO Max now. Suicide Squad opened below Birds of Prey, which was considered another uh, another lackluster fare. Uh, Wonder Woman sequel didn't particularly do that well. Justice League didn't do that well on HBO Max. Have DC got a, a got an issue with the films that they're releasing? Aren't people aren't people liking them? Is that is that part of the problem? I think part of the problem is that there's all this confusion as well. You've got your core Snyder fan base who wants Snyder back and so are very like negative about anything that doesn't have his name as a director, even though his name is attached as producer on all of yeah, these films. Absolutely. And they're still kind of following some of the themes of his, but they're going in a slightly different direction. So they're causing the negativity over here with one core part of the fan base. And then your general audiences who didn't like what Snyder did are confused as to whether or not this is part of that same film franchise. And they're getting put off because they're worried that, oh, no, I sat through Man of Steel. I sat through Justice League. Oh, I'm not going to sit through any more rubbish. And I, I think Warners need to clearly signal that, okay, we're definitely branched away to the public, not just to the fan-based communities, not just through comic book news websites, through the general news sites that the public will pick up on. They need to make clear that this is not necessarily anything to do with Zack Snyder's films. Yeah. Because the general public, sorry to say this for any Snyder fans out there, sorry to say this, but you are a minority. You might think that your Snyder films, the Zack Snyder's Justice League, did fantastic for HBO and crashed some servers. On day one, yes, when everyone jumps on board, but then it bottomed out. It's not a huge seller. And stop asking for him to come back. You're muddying the waters. You're causing confusion. And Zach's over at Netflix having fun playing his own games. Let him do that and let DC become something else so it can start to get popular again. It can start to make money again. And these characters that you claim that you love, you'll get to see represented on the big screen. Because the way that it's going with DC, they'll be pulling the plug on all the movies soon, and we'll have a couple of decades without any DC content. Yeah, I mean, nothing's nothing's landed in the way that they want them to. 
I mean, not to say that there have been some bad films. We we both enjoyed Suicide Squad. You had um, more love than I did for for Wonder Woman nineteen eighty four. Yeah. Uh, Shazam was a, uh, a a real step forward. And yeah. I'm looking forward to the Shazam sequel. I didn't like Aquaman. You did. Shazam was an example of a low budget, high profile comic book movie. But um, I I interestingly enough, um, talking to some of my film students now, they some of the ones who are aren't invested in comic book movies don't know the difference between DC and a Marvel film. They just see superhero film. Yep. And and I think that's the majority of, of the general public. Now, Marvel is a brand on its own. But um, I, for, for most film fans, for most cinema goers, should I say, the representation is they'll go and see a movie and they will recognise certain brand elements and they will recognise the Marvel brand because it's the most successful new brand over the last uh, over the last decade so uh, i you know i think i think dc have got to go back and maybe just rethink and i think you know we've talked about this right from the get-go they tried to to launch a franchise without doing the doing the groundwork for it first um we thought they'd hit the right market by being more canny and doing something individualistic but I think the idea of trying to, to launch a universe for them isn't working, especially when you compare that, throw that into the mix with something like Joker, which did really, really well because it was unique and stood out and uh, was yeah. a film in its own right rather than being tied into a, into a universe. I think one day Marvel will have, have a problem with this. I, I don't necessarily think Black Widow was that particular problem. I, I think that's more to do with people like the film, but are still nervous about COVID. And that brings us to my, my last point. Yeah. COVID is going to be a problem across the board for any film release at this moment in time until something breaks. And yeah. uh, uh, I believe that Suicide Squad has not done too bad in Europe. Am I right in that? Uh, internationally, it's scored this weekend 45.7 million, which has taken its total haul to 72.2 million in total. It's not done bad. It's had a bit of a drop off on the previous week. But most are like, well, in the UK, 15 rated and a hard 15. It's a very, very hard 15. Films do struggle to have like big box office numbers. Yeah. Uh, with, with regards to the COVID thing, I mean, yeah, that is an important factor. And that leads into our next story, doesn't it, really, about Bond? Industry analysts have kind of worked out that so far, only around 40 to 50% of past cinema going audiences have come back to the cinema since they reopened in the UK. They they are already saying that there's 10% of people who used to go to the cinema regularly who will probably never go again. They'll never feel comfortable in a screen again and they've got so used to home things. They're written off. So it means there's still like 40 to 50% who haven't gone back that you need to entice. And any films released at this point in time are going to struggle. And the big blockbusters are going to struggle. But the argument could be made do they, they, they might need to struggle. Some of the industry d distributors might need to take some losses in order to ensure that in the future, cinemas will continue to gain momentum. If we don't get these big films, no one will come back and cinemas will end up closing. And then there's no distribution channels for these big films. So they need to write off some losses this year in order for next year to be better. It is upsetting because it means that films like Dune, let's be honest, Dune's a write-off. Um, I, I want it to be successful. I want to see more films in the Dune series, but I am I am definitely of the opinion now it's not going to find an audience and it's gone. 
we'll, we'll get it released and then it'll get pulled off the cinema screens within three weeks because no one's watching it. It's sad to say, but we have to recognise the truth. And, well, we get to Bond. Yeah, well, Bond started the trend of, of, of being pulled out of the cinema. Bravely, it was a very brave decision. If you look back on it, nobody knew back in uh, March of last year, everybody was kind of under the impression that this was a, a three or four month thing. And now we are uh, a year and a half later and Bond was the first casualty. And uh, as you're about to report, is still as, as an ever moving uh, distribution date, but that distribution date is now again in jeopardy. Yep. Um, we'll expect more definitive information on this within the next few weeks as we are getting closer to September and the film is due to release at the end of September. But reports have come out this week that the film needs to make 900 million at least at the box office in order to make profit. This is because the cost of the production was filed last year and it came in at 296 million. A year on, it's risen due to the production delay, due to the delays in release to 314 million. And when you throw in the marketing and advertising costs on top of that, it's looking closer to 450 million. So factor in distribution and theatrical share, and it, you know, it needs to take at least twice that 450 million, so 900 million, before it's going to break even. No film since the pandemic has made that much money. The closest was Fast 9 with 642 million. So speculation has arisen, as you'd expect, that the film might be delayed again until cinema businesses are stronger. Which, if it gets pushed back to next year, it will tie into the 60th anniversary of the franchise. Which makes me wonder even more, are they going to move it? Because why would they not want to get it on an anniversary year? It worked so well with Skyfall. Yeah, I mean, we reported this uh, way back when. when we got we got a bit of an exclusive on the fact that, that Bond was uh, uh, already in the red because of its... Um, because of the debt that it accrued yep. over um, over the loans taken out to, to make the movie, as will affect all films at some point. Um, yeah, I mean, there's nothing about Bond out at the moment. You know, there's no TV spots. There's no new trailer to, to entice audience, which I know it's, uh, it's, it's two months away, less than two months away, but you'd think by now, this is the point where they would start to push it. The hype machine would be starting you know, up. The, the cover of GQ, and uh, as, which is as a norm, or you know, articles in newspapers yeah. and uh, leading ladies on the cover of Vogue. But we're, we're not getting that. And that's saying something to me along the lines of watch this space for an announcement, which is a shame because I, I, I think Bond is, is the, the silver bullet that, with the, that could possibly yeah. bring people back. But I think the Delta variant, I think the Delta variant is ha having an impact for those who are, uh, and, and again, I'm, I try not to offend, for those of us who are slightly more worried about the effects that the Delta variant can have, are, are the more the likely the people who are holding back on going back to the cinema. The, the worry on a cinema front, if Bond moves, is that last year we saw it happen twice, that as soon as Bond moved, every other distributor panicked and yeah. moved to all their big products. And like I said before, is that the distributors need to accept taking a potential loss in order to sustain cinemas at this point in time. And we get back to that hashtag that we were promoting mm -hmm. last year, the hashtag save our cinemas. We need cinemas to stay open in order for the distribution to get better and so that the 
studios can start making their money again next year and invest into more films and more films. Streaming is not the future. Streaming will never make the amount of money that the cinemas can make. We need the exclusivity. Um, on the exclusivities, there is some good news. In Phew, I was starting to get really, really upset and, you know, and started writing Let, letters let's, to... Let's cheer ourselves up. <laughs> let's cheer ourselves up. So Warner Brothers, who have, you know, been responsible for this split split release plan since last year. They've now secured a deal with AMC, the largest chain in the US, which agrees to a 45-day exclusivity window starting with all their productions from 2022. So it's going to get back to some kind of norm. It used to be a 90-day exclusivity, which means that cinemas got to play for at least 90 days before any home release would be planned or any streaming release, etc. Um, AMC CEO Adam Aaron unveiled this deal this week with the words, we're especially pleased Warner Brothers has decided to move away from day and date. We're in active dialogue with every major studio. And Paramount, at the same time, have also confirmed that they're sticking with a 45-day window, showing a commitment to the theatrical window going forwards. So we're starting to see that the industry is moving away from the day and date releases and giving some exclusivity to cinemas, because as we've just spent ages discussing, it needs to happen. Okay, let's talk about some casting news and and start cheering up because there still is an industry out there that's that's ticking along in the background working on new releases i've got the first bit of news idris elba who we've just talked about with the suicide squad is to voice knuckles in the sonic the hedgehog sequel sonic 2 <laughs> that is inspired casting i would never have put his voice to knuckles but now i can't think of that voice other than idris elba <laughs> <laughs> he's a good voice actor as Absolutely well he's got such inspired. a distinctive voice i mean you, you heard that yes. in jungle book um, so, uh, yeah, I, I'm not as familiar with Knuckles as, as clearly you are. But uh, that that fact that that's made you happy makes me happy. <laughs> yeah, we, we need a cheering up. Um, the Adams Family inspired Netflix series Wednesday from Tim Burton has now lined up its Morticia and Gomez in the guises of Catherine Zeta-Jones and Louis Guzman. I love Louis Guzman. He's great. He's one of those people who's always been a, a solid support actor. Yeah. And you've always, I've, I've championed him for the better part of the last two decades because every time he's in something, I'll say his name and people look at me blank faces like, he's this guy from that. And they'll be going, oh yeah, kind of recognize that. Like, no, he's amazing. Watch him in everything he's in. Yeah. You'll see what how good he can be. And I think he's marvelous as Gomez. Now, yeah, some fans have praised the casting of Zeta Jones, but griped at Guzman saying he isn't suave enough. But they're missing the point. This is not an interpretation of uh, Barry Sonnenfeld's two films, nor is it an interpretation of the old TV series. This is a look back to the original comic strip, but then doing a new story, looking at Wednesday Adams spending her years at Nevermore Academy. Uh, Wednesday Adams being played by Jenna Ortega, and it's a coming-of-age comedy, so the rest of the characters are just the Adams family in the background. But Louis Gussman is the perfect casting for the, the squat, grotesque Gomez, because it should be a case of, like, Morticia is stunning and exotic, but very dark and mysterious. And you'd always wonder, why is she with him? Oh, because they're a twisted family. Yeah. It looks perfect. And anyone who's seen the most recent animation, and the recent animated movie was cracking. I, I didn't mind it. it. That got, got really, really poor reviews. And, and I thought it was quite a fair effort. It wasn't going to yep. blow the doors off anything, but it was a fair a fair chance of, of looking at something that was Adam's family in nature. Yeah, and that was inspired more by the old comic strip as well, because the character designs were similar 
to that. So look towards that animation for what you should be expecting from the cast. And so far, I think they've got it right. I'm excited for this. Yeah. Uh, Margot Robbie is everywhere. She's literally signing up to any action adventures that you want. But now she's signed up to work with Wes Anderson. Yes, my beloved Wes Anderson. It is, <laughs> as of yet, untitled and unknown what the plot will be film. is getting more and more exciting every casting. I can see this being a theme that every week we're going to be mentioning in a new it's, person it's, getting added. It's this month's Knives Out. Because <laughs> she's joining Adrian Brody, Bill Murray, Tilda Swinton and Tom Hanks. This is the first time that she's working with Wes Anderson. It's going to be only, only going to be a support role, but I'm intrigued to see how he's going to utilise her. She's got a quirky kind of personality in a lot of her characters on film, and I want to see how this will fit. I've, I've got a nagging suspicion that Wes Anderson has been trawling my MTOS feed every, <laughs> every time that we've spoken about actors, because uh, we always finish when we t- talk about an actor saying, who would you like him to work with? Or who would you like her to work with? And my default answer is always Wes Anderson because he gets the best out of everyone. So I'm convinced that he's literally doing fan servicing for me and he's stacking his film with people who I want to work with him. If that's happening, Wes, love you, mate. If it's not happening, still love you anyway. <laughs> and talking <laughs> of ever-increasing casts, the other Knives Out, which I, I suggested, uh, and I'm hoping <laughs> my fan fiction theory will, will work, that uh, John Wick and Knives Out will cross over at some point because that has a growing cast as well with the great Clancy Brown joining John Wick Chapter 4. Yes, the Kurgan himself is going to appear alongside Keanu Reeves, Donnie Yen, Ian McShane, and the rest of uh, rest of the cast. As Ch- Chad Stileski has said, I've been a fan of Clancy Brown since I can remember. To have him be part of this project is an honour. He will make a perfect addition to the world of John Wick. And I can get that, because I've been a fl- fan of Clancy Brown since... Well, since Highlander, let's be honest. Yeah, Highlander was most of our introduction to how brilliant Clancy Brown is. And spotting him popping up in so many films since, you're always like, hey, it's Clancy Brown. Mine mine was uh, mine was Bookaroo Banzai, but and that's one day we should do a deep dive into Bookaroo Banzai. Well, that's a film that I've not seen, so that'd be an Isn't interesting it? Oh, one. right. Yeah, well, there you go. Ooh, that's, that's, one of my, that's one of my shameful, not watch this, sorry. Alongside that, Stelsky is set to produce a new film adaptation of author Trevanian's 1979 novel, Shimubi, for Warner Brothers. The story focuses on the struggle of an assassin named Nikolai Hell and the Mother Company, a secret conspiracy of energy corporations that control much of the Western world. The novel was apparently a childhood favourite of Stelsky, so having the chance to adapt it is what he considers a dream project. And on further John Wick-related news, uh, John Wick writer Derek Kolstad's next pitch, Coyote Blue, has been snapped up by Amazon Studios. Okay. Emmy winner Sterling K. Brown is on board to star with Hanel M. Culpepper, who um, worked behind the scenes directing episodes of Picard, will make her feature de- directorial debut. Uh, this film follows an everyman, played by Brown, who's hunted by cri- a crime syndicate for the mysterious cargo that he has. And he must navigate the treacherous road, Route 66, while fighting back against pursuers. So an action road movie. The John Wick crew are just going to deliver action spectacle after action spectacle. Let's be honest. Absolutely. I'm still looking forward to nobody appearing on uh, on Blu-ray because I think oh. that will be a Blu-ray purchase for me. We've also spoken quite a lot about casting news for Martin Scorsese's new film, uh, Killers of the Flower Moon. Apparently, John Lithgow, another great classic actor who have been, who's been a part of my growing up for as long as I can remember, he's joined the cast. And again, he was in Buckaroo Banzai. <laughs> so basically, I need to watch Buckaroo Banzai at some point. Uh, you do. 
Yeah, Lithgow is going to be starring alongside Leonardo DiCaprio, Robert De Niro and Jesse Plemons, three names that we love. Uh, And the the film, for those who aren't aware, Killers of the Flower Moon is based on a book by David Grant and it explores the serial murders of members of the oil-wealthy Osage Nation in the 1920s. So it's kind of a a post-modernistic Western um, exploring real-life events. Things kind of thing that Scorsese tends to do pretty well. Uh, shall we talk about Rock the Dwayne Johnson? Yes, why not? Because he wasn't in Bakru Banzai. And I think it's a it's a perfect segue <laughs> to stop talking about Bakru Banzai. But I'm going to see if throughout the programme if I can get another link. And I do know there's another link. <laughs> so with Jungle Cruise being out, uh, yeah, he's been doing production tour and like promotion tour with Hiram Garcia, um, his production partner. And Obviously, the discussions have got round to other things that he's working on, one of which is uh, relating to the Fast and Furious franchise. So we re- we heard a couple of weeks ago that The Rock will not be returning for the last few Fast and Furious films, to which everyone was like, oh, no, we really love the character of Hobbs. Don't worry, because they've confirmed that the second Hobbs and Shaw film is still in the pipeline because they're no longer considering it as being tied to the Fast and Furious franchise. Um, <laughs> As Hiram Garcia has said, we just have specific plans for what we want to do with the Hobbs character, and I think fans are going to love it. We're working to deliver something very unique and fresh, and we know the studio is eager for us to get into it. At the moment, we're trying to figure out what that sequel is going to be, but we have some very big ideas. I'm all for it, because whereas the Hobbs and Shaw franchise is just as ridiculously over the top as what The Fast and Furious is, it doesn't take itself seriously, and that's why it works. Whereas Fast and Furious bogs itself down with Vin Diesel thinking he's a serious actor. Hobbs and Shaw was just a joy because of the cast. Idris Elba, Rock, the Dwayne Johnson, and the Stave. Those three on screen was ticking all my boxes. And it's the only Fast and Furious movie I've seen. <laughs> yeah, you've done well there. Um, on the subject of whether The Rock would shift to Marvel, it seems that whilst The Rock loves what Feige's doing, and absolutely enjoys everything that he sees Marvel-wise. He's got no interest at this point in time for stepping across and doing any projects over there because he's happy to just focus on Black Adam and hopefully build up that into a series of films and get that presence out there. His role within DC at the moment is more than enough for him. It's, you know, it's not, I'm not going to return, I'm not going to go over to Marvel at all. It's just not at this point in time. Uh, the Scorpion King reboot is on the first draft and the polishing work of it is being done now. It's planned as a team up with Bob Zemeckis, although they still don't have a schedule that works or fits for any of the crew. And the third Jumanji film is stuck in development hell at the moment because the director, Jake Kazdan, and producer, Matt Tolmach, are refusing to go ahead with it unless they can deliver the best version of the story. And that's good to hear. Basically, they don't want to just deliver a cheap sequel. They want it to have a reason to exist. And whilst, you know, the first two films did great business and a third film will probably do great business as well, just on the back of that, they don't want to cheapen the franchise. And I, I, I have utter respect for any creators who say, look, no, I want this to, I want this to work as its own thing. And finally, on the rock news... Uh, the Big Trouble sequel has stalled as they want to work out a way to make it serve as not only a new entry for newcomers, but honour the original film without being a remake. Basically, they wanted to be a reboot kind of a sequel. They wanted to be The Suicide Squad. This might be a bad idea, but at the same time, it's a good idea that they don't want to tread on the toes of what is quite a highly regarded, beloved um, classic of the 80s. So 
we'll we'll probably get more news on Big Trouble next year, but it's stalled at the moment. It's been put on hold until they can work out how it can work as its own thing whilst also honouring the original. And also a tie-in to um, Bukuru Banzai on that as well. <laughs> Oh man, I'm, I've, I've got to be trying. I've got to be really careful not to um, have We've still this, got um, another one to go. We've still got another uh, another link. Uh, Chronicle Two is being touted, and it's intended to be a gender switched follow up to the 2012 film. Uh, John Davis, the producer, has said that we're working on Chronicle Two right now. I think it's going to be great. We're working on it at Fox Studios. It's going to give us a chance to tell the story in a different way because we're telling it from the female point of view. It's a female point of view, definitely a different way. Is this gender swapping thing just a bit too, I don't know, Ghostbusters 2016? I don't know. I mean, it's 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 chronicle and it doesn't have to be a direct sequel. I mean, it could go anywhere and, and it doesn't even have to be set in the US at this stage. It could absolutely go anywhere with this, this particular. Um, I, I mean, I really doubt that we need a chronicle sequel, to be honest, because it's now 10 years since Chronicle came out and yeah, it wasn't a cultural phenomenon. It was just a, a, a mildly successful film that did something different with a superhero idea. The story-wise, it does have an interesting background, which makes me go, "Okay, this might be interesting." It's been ten years since the events that happened in Seattle in the first film, and a lot of the film is going to deal with fake news and real news and cover-ups and how people don't believe that this actually took place and they think it was all just like manufactured videos by people. And there's a lot of like. Well, what we see as modern day issues that you don't know what to trust and what you don't trust. And then there's some young women who are finishing college and have started to develop powers themselves. And this is their journey, latching on to the little details of news that they saw from Seattle's events and learning what they can about themselves through what happened previously. See, now I'm intrigued. Interesting concept. The original film cost just 12 million to make and it starred Dane DeHaan and basically made a name of Michael B. Jordan. Um, it was directed by Josh Trank, but it's unlikely that he's going to return to the franchise. It seems though he's been kind of cast out by most studios at this point in time. Uh, do you remember the 1997 film Cube? I do remember the 1997 Cube movie because A, it spawned a, a very short franchise, but mainly because it did something really, really cool with the idea of a film set on one set. And um, yeah. every writer who ever tries to write a film based on one set went, God, that was genius. It was a very smart <laughs> film. Um, the director went on to do uh, some other things, including the recent uh, Stephen King adaptation of In the Tall Grass, I believe. That was him. He also worked on a TV's Hannibal, uh, directed a few episodes of that. Well, a reboot from Lionsgate has been on the cards for a long time. But it's stalled as they're trying to work out how, you know, what kind of budget, who they're going to cast and where it's going to go. But the Japanese have beat them to it. And Sh- Shimizu Yashuko has helmed a new version with Suda Masaki, Okada Masaki, Tashiro Hikaru and Saito Takumi starring. The trailer landed this week. And even though it's not, you have to put on the auto translate subtitles, which make no sense uh, because it's not been <laughs> translated across to the UK audience as of yet. Just watching it, it's got the visual style and the feel and the tone perfectly right. I'm I'm intrigued for this. And as soon as there's an international distribution, I am jumping on this. I love the Cube series. There was only the three films that were made. Yeah. Um, the second one is the weakest. It was interesting and it tried to do like time-related mechanics and break the fifth dimension. Didn't quite work. But then the third one went back to the origins and 
was an interesting way to approach it. And it was basically intended to be a backdoor pilot into a TV series that never launched. Right. I'd love to see the Cube franchise branched out because there was a lot of world building behind the scenes that was going on for why this Cube puzzle device exists and who the organization and faces are behind it. And I think there's a lot to explore. Let's see what the Japanese film does. Let's see if the Japanese tap into it well, because the Japanese are notorious for if they tap into something well, they will then continue to deliver and deliver and deliver more in the franchise. Okay, okay. Speaking of delivering more in the franchise, are you hungry for more games? Am I? Is the prequel to the Hunger Games... No, but that is the answer. I can quite happily starve. <laughs> uh, the prequel to The Hunger Games is set to start production early next year. It's targeting a late 2023 or early 2024 release, and it's moving along well on the pre-production. Anticipated to be based on Susan Collins's The Ballad of Songbirds and Snakes, the story will focus on 18-year-old Cornelius Snow, years before he becomes the ty- tyrannical president. He's chosen to play in the 10th Games and assigned to mentor the girl tribute from the impoverished District 12. Does it I've seen the first Hunger Games and that was as much as he ever needed to see. And this just feels like, oh, look, it's a prequel, which is telling the same story. It's one of those where um, it can definitely fall into the category of more blood from a stone because I think audiences have moved on. And the most important element of the Hunger Games success was the casting. And that's what made it work. It uh, It was the right time for that cast to work and uh that was that was the success of it and i think even when people started to wane with the last film it was the casting that kept people in there so i think it's it's the case of producers wanting to see uh, pound signs come back to a franchise that they think will do well but i think the public vote has moved on in the same way we talked about gi joe last week complete news to me this week is that not only is south park still a thing it's, as, it's big enough a thing for Paramount Plus to sign Matt and Trey up for five more seasons of the show and 14, yes, 14 South Park movies, with two of them set for release by the end of this year. What? what? What's going on? <laughs> what kind of a world are we living in? I know the South Park's still running, but I thought it's like The Simpsons where no one really admits to actually watching it. And, you know, we, we, we all remember like four episodes from season three and that's about it. Uh, Matt and Trey are world class creatives, says Chris McCarthy, the Paramount CEO, who brilliantly use their outrageous humor to skewer the absurdities of our culture. And we're excited to expand and deepen our long relationship with them to help fuel Paramount Plus and Comedy Central. Franchising marquee content like South Park and developing new IP with tremendous talent like Matt and Trey is at the heart of our strategy to continue to grow Paramount Plus. Now. I know that the South Park Bigger, Longer, Uncut was a film that was so much better than what everyone expected because it went full musical and had fun. And I've got a lot of love for it. Yeah, me too. It didn't make me laugh. If they can do that with another movie, yeah, I'm all for it. But 14 movies? Is this not overkill? Is is that not part of the gag, though? (laughs) Really, is the idea that they think we need 14 movies because, you know, that's two movies a year basically. Let's see. Like you say, the, the first two are due to come out by the end of this year, so we'll get to see whether they are they have the justification to be full-length features or whether they just feel like cobbled-together episodes of the show. I'm interested with the movies. I'm not interested with the series. And finally, let's wrap up. Argyle, the Matthew Vaughan spy caper, which is planned as a franchise starter, is close to landing a deal for Apple at $200 million. Wow. It's at big bucks. Apple, as we know, 
and we keep saying are delivering quality and they're seeking quality and they're always after names and making sure that they get the best profile that they can. And they do limited distribution through cinemas at the same time. So it's good news for cinemas. Henry Cavill, Bryce Dallas Howard, John Cena, Sam Rockwell, Brian Cranston, Catherine O'Hara, Samuel L. Jackson and Dua Lipa are all lined up to star in this Bond-esque globetrotting adventure that I've got my eye firmly placed on. You know, I think Apple needs some some big wins right now. Not that their content is is poor by any stretch of the imagination. My favourite programmes at the moment are all on Apple. But I think to pull in a new audience, because they are kind of... Almost niche. Yeah, the the Apple the Apple content is a, is a little bit niche, and I think maybe something a li- little bit blockbustery will help define them a, a, a little bit more. So it seems a perfect fit, but that's a lot of money to spend on, on, on that movie. Time will tell. And that, dear listeners, is the news. If you're enjoying the show, and we hope you are, then... Head over to your favorite podcast platform, hit the subscribe button, hit the like button, and make us both ridiculously rich beyond our wildest dreams, because that's how the kids are doing it these days. As opposed to just being richly ridiculous. (laughs) As opposed. And if you want to know more about The Film File, you can do so by checking us out on Instagram at Film File UK, where you get little teasers in the stories as to what I've been watching and what may come up on the show. You can check us out on Facebook. Film File UK. And more importantly, you can find us on Twitter and interact with us on a regular basis. At Film File UK, where you'll get to find exactly how opinionated Andy can be. Um, (laughs) And how damn lazy I can be. (laughs) (laughs) By just hitting likes. So... Over the last week, we had the great opportunity to talk to Adam Nelson from Apple Park Films. Adam is a writer-director who's really created something from the ground up. He has a new film in pre-production that he is fundraising for right now. We had a great chat with him. You can find that on our bonus episode. So uh, if you're not subscribed to the film file, please do so and check out this extended interview with him. But we'll give you the opportunity to hear Adam talk about his new film, The Maya, and how you can get involved with helping to fund this film. Thanks for joining us, Adam. Um, We want to know everything you want to tell us about Apple Park Films. Uh, Apple Park Films is is my production company. Its namesake is from the first short film that I made that had any sort of real kind of success or weight behind it. I made a short film called The House Near Apple Park, and that was the first one that People, other people watched and liked and it got into some festivals and people sort of didn't win any awards but people got to see it and that was really kind of like the impetus for me before that everything I'd made had been kind of very personal I'd made it for myself just to kind of test things out and I figured that because I'd made this short film that had been somewhat of a success for 300 pounds across three days I thought well Stands the reason that if I take 30 days and I have £6,000, I can probably make a feature film, which is what I decided to do. And not coming from a sort of film school background and not coming from a production background of any kind, I had no idea just how kind of crazy that notion actually was. So we went into it with both feet. We leapt in with both feet. And what came out at the end of it was... Little Pieces, our first feature film. It's a film that is very kind of dear to me 
in the sense that I wanted to make a feature film to prove that I could do it. The whole purpose of going in to make it was not so much to make a film that was really successful, but more just to be able to prove to myself and to investors for future projects that, look, I can take an idea from concept through to finished product. Tell us about your next project, The Maya. You've, you've um, had a bit of prelude to it. What do we expect from that? How uh, How's it going? When are we likely to see it? And a little bit about the film itself. So, uh, Maya is a contained thriller, and it's about the cult leader who is um, who has convinced his followers to give him their earthly belongings and all their cash, because he's convinced them that they're about to, in his words, ascend. But what that is, is it's a planned mass suicide for the entire cult. He has no intention of joining them. He's going to take the money and scarper. But on the sort of eve of this happening, his two top lieutenants are worried because he's not issued the final instructions on what people are to do and what time they are to do it. So they trap him in the church that they've built. He's been doing this a long time. It's a long con for him. You know, he's been at it for eight years. And they try and convince him to rejoin the fold and rejoin this mass suicide. And he's put himself in a position because he knows he's lying and he's always been lying, but they absolutely believe everything he said. And where he's built in defense mechanisms for people who challenge him on lying, they're now using those defense mechanisms against him when he's trying to convince them that actually he needs to leave and get out. So he's trapped himself there. And it becomes like a battle of wits played out over the course of one evening. And we also look back into the history of how he is with these two lieutenants and how he's taken two very vulnerable people who are in very vulnerable positions and manipulated them into doing his bidding and becoming who he wants them to be. And it's something that I've always found like massively fascinating because I'm, I'm agnostic, but I'm really fascinated about what people believe and why they believe. Also, how people might use those things, those beliefs to manipulate people. Um, I'm really fascinated by cults and cult leaders. I'm really fascinated by, I was raised a Roman Catholic. I went to a Roman Catholic school. Um, and I am like quite fascinated by these massive preachers in the US who run these mega churches and live in $4.2 million mansions and drive really expensive cars. Yet, admittedly, I've not read the Bible with any sort of meaning for a long time. But if I recall, it had very clear viewpoints on uh, amassing money and not helping people in need with it and so on and so forth. So at, it, at its heart, the writer Chris best describes it as a morality tale told from the perspective of quite possibly the most immoral man you'll ever meet. Um, and it, that is a really good way to look at it because he is immoral and we are looking at the film through his eyes and it is we are asking people to not empathise but to be interested in a bad person um, and look at his story because I'm a firm believer that characters don't always have to be nice and likable but actually they just have to be interesting and so where are we with the Maya now what stage are we at and when can we think about seeing it released we are quite deep into pre-production we're doing a crowdfunder at the moment where we're trying to raise the last the crowdfunder represents the last 16% of the budget um, which is about 40 uh, which is about 4,000 pounds um, we've just hit kind of 29% funded after we went public on Friday. 
last week. So we've just hit 29% after just under a week. That's really good, I think, really positive and optimistic. We're shooting in October. We've got dates locked in. We know when we're going to shoot in October. If anybody wants to help you out with that last 16% of the budget, how can they do so? So we're, we're on the crowdfunding platform Greenlit. It's the project page is greenlit.com slash project slash Meyer, M-I-R-E. However, that's quite long. So, um, you know, people can follow me on Twitter at Apple Park Films. It's just me, Apple Park Films. So it's not just constantly trying to sell people things. It is at the minute because we're trying to raise money. But I kind of like to treat the account as being like a human being because it is me. It's my views. Why shouldn't I? Um, in that respect well adam best of luck with the maya best of luck Thank with you all your uh your all your intentions it's always great to talk to filmmakers who've got a passion for what they're doing if you want to hear the full chat which is about an hour long a really good discussion with adam about his influences his life and his journey in order to get within the film industry and maybe inspire yourself to do the same uh, you can check out the bonus episode over on all major pod streaming platforms and you can also follow adam on twitter at apple park films where you can learn all about the maya and how to get involved thanks andy that takes us nicely into this week's deep dive it's a film that's been spoken about a lot in in fact i've just recently watched a very informative netflix uh on the films that made us about back to the future but it is a classic came out in 1985 directed by robert zemeckis it starred Michael J. Fox, Leah Thompson, Crispin Glover, and from Bookaroo Banzai, Christopher Lloyd. And it follows the story of Marty McFly, a teenager accidentally sent back to 1955 in a time-travelling DeLorean automobile, built by his eccentric friend, Dr. Emmett Brown. Trapped in the past, Marty inadvertently prevents his future parents from meeting, therefore threatening his very existence. Mom? Had a horrible nightmare. Dreamed that I went back in time. Well, safe and sound now, back in good old 1955. 1955? Oh, Doc, are you telling me that you built a time machine? What of a DeLorean? The way I see it, if you're gonna build a time machine into a car, why not do it with some style? Hey, McFly! This is the big one, the one I've been waiting for all my life. You're my mom. You're my mom. So there's not a lot can be said about Back to the Future that's not been said already. It's an absolute classic. I think it's one of those films that ends up in most people's top 10, and especially for those of us who grew up in the 80s. It's, and, and, and Andy's going to talk about this in detail, I think it's one of those defining films for that generation. Big concept ideas, an affable cast, uh, well-paced, well-shot, and just intriguing enough that sets it aside from from the usual sorts of box office film. And Steven Spielberg, who produced this as part of the Amblin 
production company was on an absolute roll and, and back to the future again was that was the highlight of this role i saw it upon its release it blew me away in a way that it blew everybody away it just has exactly it's beat for beat perfect the, the perfect casting which we'll talk about in a, in a while it, yeah. it's it's funny it's romantic it's adventurous it's clever ultimately it's heartwarming and in it's an eternal storyline you could make this film now with this technology uh, and still tell very much the same story with the same themes and that's what makes a, a, a good classic film that you can go back to it and still recognize something something in it that that talks to you about it but as i said i discovered it in the theaters when it came out andy when did you first come across back to the future exactly the same even before this film came out i was getting obsessed with the imagery from it i had magazines about the film uh, because the delorean the delorean made this film stand out and this is a film that made an international star of michael j fox but it also managed to make the DeLorean car line, a failed production car line, the most yes. desirable object to legions of teenagers around the world who have now grown up and all want to have enough money to buy an old DeLorean and kit it out in the same way. It's If this film had come out a couple of years earlier while DeLoreans were being made, DeLorean probably would, would still be going today and you'd still be buying the, the latest release model of them. But it was just absolute perfection of using that as a time machine and acknowledging the ridiculousness of it with having the line in the script of like you built a time machine out of a delorean and it just conveys they're like why would you pick this car but you look at it gullwing doors the silvery metal framework it looks futuristic and that's why it works this is a film the the direction from bob zemeckis who also co-wrote with bob gale and with the production credit from Spielberg, ensures that the film not only looks great, it paces perfectly, and it never feels like it underuses and any moment. This is a film that the script had gone through so many iterations. There's so many tweaks and designs, but what was left at the end had no unwarranted flab. The editing is superb. It makes sure that if something's on screen, it has a purpose. There's nothing there that is superficial. Everything is part of the core story and the the heart and the emotion. There's touches of humour scattered throughout and they all land well. And the whole affair looks as great today as what it did back then. Yeah, even despite the fact that it has... And I, I didn't realise this until I watched a documentary about the movie recently. Had some incomplete special effects uh, when it came out because it was rushed through production because when they did a, a test screening of it, it was so successful that they moved it along. It's a film that's crafted with love. The, the concept started way back uh, in 1980. Bob Gale and Robert Zemeckis were film students together. They sold their first script to Spielberg, which was 1941, which again is one of those films we should talk about at, at some point. Uh, they were seen as as kind of the, the new saviors of Hollywood. Uh, Zemeckis was... Uh, um, an up-and-coming director who Spielberg took under his wing in many ways and and uh, uh, mentored him, but they just couldn't get a hit. They did some some great films together, including uh, I Want to Hold Your Hand, which is a, a, a brilliant little movie about mm. the Beatles first appearing in, in the US. Uh, and then they did that with uh, used cars, 
which is uh, uh, an out and route laugh a minute comedy stars Kurt Russell. Again, it didn't land for an audience. Uh, Zemeckis went on to do uh, another project while Bob Gale was sketching out an idea that eventually became Back to the Future. And that was Romancing the Stone. And that was a big hit. And that gave them the opportunity to make Back to the Future. Um, there were all sorts of problems with studio before it, before it landed. And ultimately, as we know, it was one of the biggest hits of the year. But it's, it's, it's one of those films that's just become a part of our culture. You, you can't think of the, the, the term Back to the Future anymore without thinking of those movies. It influenced uh, Rick and Morty, which is a, a, a direct send-up of, of Back to the Future. In fact, if you see the earlier cartoons, it's a lot closer to, to Back to the Future in the, its storyline. It's such a, a perfect film. It was nearly a very, very different film, as, if, as, as legend goes, with the casting. Everybody wanted uh, Michael J. Fox for the role. He couldn't do it due to a... a TV series he was in at the time so another actor was brought in that actor was Eric Stoltz and it didn't land he wasn't the comedic actor uh, that that Michael J Fox with and the charisma wasn't working and the the film recast during production Michael J Fox came in and you can't think of Back to the Future without Michael J Fox in it his relationship with with uh, uh, Bukuru Banzai's Christopher Lloyd was absolutely perfect uh, and the rest is film history. Yeah, I mean, the, the casting of this is critical to why it's so successful. The energy of the cast, especially Fox, who amazingly keeps that energy, despite the fact that whilst filming this, he was spending the day filming Family Ties for TV. Then finishing, breaking from that, heading over the lot, going over to Back to, Back to the Future, filming that until the early hours of the morning getting like two hours sleep, then getting up to start the process all over again. How he kept alive, let alone energetic, is a complete bewilderment. But he's got an instant charm to his character. It's impossible for audiences not to warm to Marty's plight. And the excellent support from everyone around him, the magnificent Christopher Lloyd, as eccentric as he could possibly be, is so perfect. You cannot imagine anyone else in a Doc Brown-esque kind of role. Leah Thompson playing the young and old um, mother and Crispin Glover playing nervy and nerdy to perfection. Uh, Thomas F. Wilson became everyone's favourite bully in the form of Biff Tannen. He's a bully that you actually enjoy watching on screen despite the fact he's not a great character. The whole cast make the whole thing work and I've seen so many documentaries with behind the scenes and you can see the energy and the fun that they were having on set that is conveyed so perfectly across into the end result. The time travel elements, you know what I'm like with time travel. I get very picky. If something doesn't make sense, I start to get too analytical. I mean, it's all theoretical anyway, but I still obsess over the science of time travel. And this film handles it well by never bogging itself down with trying to explain it. All it just basically says is like, "Uh, well, yeah, we went back in time. Just accept that it works. Here you go. And as long as you're willing to suspend that and not get bogged down, I'm willing to do it. No one else should get obsessed. The tale then lets the character drama take the center stage. It's a time travel film, but the characters are more important than the time travel. What One of the absolute baffling things is that this is a film that is so likable and charming that it even tackles the topic of what if your mother wanted to get together with you without making it seem creepy. Yeah, yeah. I mean, the thing <laughs> about talking about Back to the Future is that there, there's so many, there's, there's so much coverage of it. 
it's not one of those uh, those movies which is, which has not been documented in some way. Most people are aware of, of the casting change. Most people are aware of that the film went through this this long production process and uh, against all odds became the huge hit. And I think the reason we're talking about Back to the Future is because you can draw something so personable to it that the reason that they they were all three films ultimately were, were big hits, but but initially Back to the Future is that we are all Mar- Marty McFly to a degree. We're all that kid who's asked those questions, and 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 that's why Michael J. Fox was just just the perfect casting. He was us. He was every every kid who's ever thought about time travel and made it feel as though you could do it, and 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 that's what would happen if you went back in time and you and you met. Uh, you you met your parents and you you saw them grow up and everybody still fantasizes in their head at some point in their life about about time travel. It's it's the working kids time travel movie. Yeah, just thinking about this film though, my anytime someone mentions Back to the Future, straight away in my head that iconic theme tune starts playing. I cannot talk even as I'm talking now. I can hear it going dun 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 in my head because it's so perfect alan silvestri's score is one of those tunes that sits perfectly with all the events of the film that it's impossible to separate the sound from the images much like indiana jones you talk indiana jones and straight away you've got in your head or star wars i've just said star wars you know that you've got at least one of the themes from star wars playing around at the back of your cranium now throw in a pop tune by huey lewis in the news who also got a nice comical cameo early on in the film and the film is just sci-fi comedy magic. Yeah. When it got to the sequels, which the part two arrived in 1989 and part three in 1990, they were filmed back to back. I remember when I saw part two at the cinema, I, I didn't I didn't take to it. There was something I, that I agree with you off. there. It, it, I think it's because without part three, part two just feels like a jumble. It feels like it's throwing in too many sci-fi concepts of time travel, like alternate realities, etc. And it just feels a bit messed up. But once part three came out and flipped it back to the Old West and concluded the trilogy, part two then got a rewatch and I embraced it even more. And now I see it as if I watch Back to the Future part one, I immediately go on to part two and part three because I see it all as one full story. And it's one of those full stories that whilst you don't need part two and part three to enjoy the first one, it works as a whole trilogy. And thankfully, aside from a cartoon series, it's never seen any any further sequels. And And I don't think it will ever be remade. And, and that kind of begs the question again, because it's, it is a classic. And if you haven't already, at some point, you will show your children, uh, as, as I, will, I will do that as well. Why do we think it's still relevant? And I think that's the question. Everybody, as I said, has, has talked about the making of it and, uh, and why the film became the big success. But why do you think it's still relevant? Why do you think it, it can really be purely termed a, a classic movie? I think it's because... Even though it's an 80s film, and for me, it represents the best of the 80s, and there are 80s themes within there, the time travel aspect taking it back to the 50s means that it's not ingrained in the 80s, so it doesn't feel dated today, because the 50s were dated anyway, so you accept that past relationship. Like I said, it's the energy of everything. There's nothing that specifically categorizes it as it's of this period. It's a film that is open for anyone to embrace. Like I said, the effects hold up, even though 
they weren't completed and some of them looked a bit shonky back then. But in the same way that Jaws, the effects hold up because you look past the flaws, because you're just caught up with it. It's a film that doesn't demand... It doesn't demand anything of you. It just asks you to sit and enjoy it and go along with the ride. And it's the characters. It's a character... Like I said, it's character-driven more than sci-fi-driven. So you might not have a love of sci-fi. You might think time travel is all bunkum and nonsense. But you are following the plight of Marty McFly, and it's impossible not to like Michael J. J. Fox in anything. Let's be honest, the guy has been in so many things that the films themselves might have been a bit weak, but he carries them along because he's so engaging. And Back to the Future is, in my opinion, his best role, his best character. And I'm going to say it, this is the best film of the 80s. Uh, for me, it's because it's it's inventive and it's still inventive. You can watch it time and time again uh, in isolation without watching it with the, with the rest of the film. And it, and it feels clever. And it's beautifully constructed. It's still funny. The gags land. And there's a, there's a moral to it as well. And it's not a moralistic film. But it's just the idea that, that, that A, everybody's got parents. And you always wonder what your parents were like when, you, when they were young. And that's eternal. Every generation has that. But it's, it's going back in time and changing just enough for everything to turn out okay. And I think that's a dream that just doesn't go away. I think everybody yeah. wants to go back into at some point into their life and make things better in, in the present day. And, and I think that's a fantasy we all have. And Back to the Future expresses that absolutely perfectly. So moving on, that was Back to the Future. Out of the past, into the present. What have we got this week for reviews? And I know we've seen one film together. Do you want to start with one that I've not seen and then we'll move on to talk about Vivo? Well, let's start with a double bill of two films that I've got short reviews for that both caught me by surprise. Now, first of all, we've got the French film The Swarm that landed on Netflix. And this film was presented as a potential horror film about man-eating locusts, but it turned out to be something entirely different, but in a good way. The story is that a woman breeds locusts to grind their sheddings to make high-protein flower substitute, but struggles to make enough of decent quality to maintain her family. However, when she discovers that the insects thrive on human blood, leading to more consistent quality and volume of stock, it begins an obsession that actually starts to turn her away from her family as she builds more and more greenhouses for the insects and the farm. All the time, the threat of the creatures and what they do when they escape is there in the background. And this is primarily a family drama with underlying menacing aspects that borders on horror. Whereas the story sounds like it would fulfil killer insects on the rampage kind of genre, it very much avoids that and makes it all about the, her struggle to raise her family and do what she thinks is right for her family, but how doing what is right is actually breaking her away from her own children and how her obsession threatens everything. It's engaging and it's eerily disturbing at times and it does have horror elements towards the end, but it was an absolute pleasure of a surprise to go in expecting a full-blown horror, but get such a personal character drama. I'm intrigued by this. I'm intrigued by it, strange enough, by being French. And I think a lot of French thrillers uh, and and horror films do have a tendency to to explore more than just the, the horror elements. Um, and I think that's the kind of, of, of style that they have. And yet, I'm, I'm while I'm intrigued by it, I'm not drawn to it. So maybe with that review, it'll give me an extra reason to, to, to watch it. But at the moment, I don't know. 
uh, in my head, I think it's one of those very different films than, than what I'll eventually get to see. Now, the absolute surprise of the week for me is a film called The Dry. This is a low-key affair starring Eric Banner as a federal agent returning to his hometown to attend a funeral of an old school friend. But he finds himself troubled by the so-called facts of the incident, and he begins to investigate the murder, finding that old demons from his past are brought to light once more. Now, this is on Sky Movies, and yes, it's a Sky original. So you can imagine that going in, I thought, ah, oh, I can hear the be? trepidation from here. Like, like I've said before, is that sometimes Sky originals surprise me, and this is one that surprised me. As the two different mysteries play out, one in the present and one in flashback, the tone of the film feels very gone, baby, gone. And Eric Banner absolutely sells it investigating this. It's a slow-burning drama. It makes great use of the setting. It's a backwater town with secrets aspect. And it's all perfectly, perfectly presented. It's I, I was caught up right from the start. And a lot of that is to do with Banner in a solid central role. And it made me remember that period in history when Eric Banner was Hollywood's next big thing. And this film reminds you of why he was the next big thing. And it makes you sad that he never really found his place. But boy, if he can do keep delivering these low-key affairs instead, I'm more than happy. And if more Sky Originals can be like this, then I will stop using them as a negative term. I And I, I Sky will rue the day when you do that. No doubt about it. <laughs> so one film that we have seen is Vivo, which landed on Netflix this last week, which is an animated film. Lin-Manuel Miranda of Hamilton fame uh, is Vivo. It's a, is a musical kinkajou who busks in Cuba with his beloved owner, Andreas. But when tragedy strikes, Vigo, Vivo goes on a mission to journey to Miami, Florida, to deliver a message in the form of a song to Andreas's old flame, Marta, with the help of Andreas' goofy niece, Gabby. Marta. I never told her how I felt. I put it in this song. Marta, here I come. The mission for love is on. Oh, no. Viva, rated PG. And keep the beat. It's a very bright, beautifully crafted uh, animation, uh, incredibly colourful. And as you would expect from Lin-Manuel Miranda, it's chock full of his style of songs. Andy, what did you think about it? I have some trepidations on it. Um, there's a lot I liked. I don't think it was aimed at me, but what are your views on it? With music and lyrics by Lin-Manuel Miranda, it's safe to say that if you're a fan of his musical approach, you will get something out of this film. If you've never been a fan of his style of music, then you'll find this film entirely tiresome. I've got some love for him, but even then, I found I struggled for about the first 15, 20 minutes to connect with the film. I wasn't clicking with it to start off with until the heartbreaking moments that set Sparks the journey to deliver the song of love. And from that point onwards, the film kind of picked up pace, but also picked up some heart and some sentiment along the journey. And by the end of the film, whilst I'd enjoyed the ride, and there's a lot of forgettable nonsense in there that was unnecessarily in there, which kind of bogged it down at times. But I, I wasn't in tears by the end, like a Pixar film would get me. 
with a similar kind of approach. But it did feel like a little flecks of dust causing some irritation to the eyeball. It did manage to to connect with me, but not in a perfect way. There's there's definitely maybe one or two many songs, and the songs do sometimes get in the way. And I've seen people online who started saying, but we see scenes where the King of Jude isn't actually talking, yet when he's singing, people are following along as though he's singing. It's like, just, it's a cartoon. Just ignore all the, the like... <laughs> Don't take just, it too just, seriously. Just let it happen. Just let it happen. Um, I enjoyed it. Would I watch it again? Probably not. Would I listen to the soundtrack? Yeah, I probably would. The music works better on its own than what it did with some of the animations. But it is a great example of how Netflix's deal with Sony, which has allowed them access to a lot of Sony products, is paying off. Because this is a great... This is a great, delightful animation for Netflix. And the recent Mitchells vs. the Machines was another one. And both are films that I think might have struggled to find an audience on the big screen. I, I so agree. Netflix, Netflix have scored well, and Sony have scored well by getting this distribution channel to bring it out to a bigger audience. I was going to say more or less the same. I mean, their deal with, uh, with Sony... And Sony are on a bit of a hot streak, aren't they, at the moment with their animation? And Mitchell's versus Machines is, is clearly one of our films of the year. Spider-Man to the yeah. Spider-Man verse. They all have it, the connection being they are lively and colourful uh, and break a lot of the mould of, 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 of standard animation. And I'm, I'm aiming that finger particularly at the, the, the Spirit film, which yeah. now looks dull as dishwater from, from Amblin animation. And they've got those those flourishes and, and just nice little uh, of touches where it becomes retro 2D animation as well. And and they, they play with the form, the Sony Studios, and, and that's that's a great thing. I, I agree with everything you said. It didn't hit home for me. I, I found it a slog be, before the ending. What I did like, and and that was Lin-Emmanuel Miranda's uh, 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 songs on it, Bar one, which really, really annoyed me to the point I had to leave the room and fast forward. I like that rat-a-tat hip-hop style that he delivers that that made Hamilton the big success. And his rhyming couplets are absolutely, uh, absolutely stunning. He's got a lyrical flow. He has. It's a lyrical flow similar to like your your old school hip-hop of like Rakeem. It just jumps out. And I I love that. And, And there's there's a, a love of, of the form of music and the language of music, and he's got a great use of wordplay. I agree there were far too many songs in it. It was okay. It, it passed an hour and a half, and we watched it while we were eating, and it just sort of like it, it was it was the best way to watch it. I don't think, as you said, I don't think it would have particularly jumped out at the cinema. I think it will find a big market on, on Netflix as opposed to have, have it had a cinema release. But it was enjoyable. Um, yeah. So far, it's the weakest I've seen out of Sony Animation's uh, recent stretch of movies, but it's it's okay, and the songs are what elevate it. I, it's it's the weakest of the Sony Animations, but I'd still put it as a better animation than something like another Minions film or a Boss Baby film. Absolutely, yeah, and it had more heart than any than any of those movies. At least it's creative. Absolutely, and th- and that that's what I'm loving is that Sony are being creative. They're throwing ideas out that. They've got an audience for because Netflix gives them that audience. Yeah. So the final film this week is Profile. Profile. Amy, you're the best journalist we have. I need something now. I've been investigating young women being recruited by extremists. This is brilliant. Salam alaikum, my sister. Are you a type? You're hot. Come here. I'll give you everything you need. 
I'm reeling him in. He's a terrorist. Oh, my God. No, you say you're... What? We'll find you in a matter of minutes. No, 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 please don't. Profile. Now, this is based on the non-fiction book In the Skin of a Jihadist. Profile is another entry into the current wave of computer screen recorded movies, such as Unfriended, Host and Spree. And this time it adapts the true story of a journalist who created a fake profile in order to pursue a story on how young English girls are recruited by ISIS. Using the on-screen recording approach, uh, we see Amy, played by Valian Kane, setting up the profile and making contact with a recruiter named Bilal, Shazad Latif. As she begins to gain his trust, she starts to actually fall deeper into the relationship with Bilal, falling for his charms, and begins to doubt her Western life and swaying towards actually fleeing the UK to live with Bilal instead. The shtick that is used with the computer screen recording is still quite an effective manner of presentation. I don't think it's been overdone yet, but it runs the risk that we're going to get to a stage where these films just become too cliché. But in this one, as we skim over the recordings of the conversations with occasional interruptions from friends, co-workers and their actual partner, either by a video call or emails or rent needs paying popping up on the screen, you find yourself genuinely caught up in Amy's tale and the peril as she starts to descend into this, this potential jihadist life with each contact that she makes. Director Timur Beckman Berbatov who gave us action outings such as Nightwatch, Wanted, and Abraham Lincoln, Vampire Hunter, and I am impressed that I said his surname straight away <laughs> without even having to pause, actually seems a comfortable fit for the task, which is a much more low-key affair to his past offerings. A profile is a sharp insight into the world of recruitment and actually gives you some understanding of how insecure and troubled young women could be so easily manipulated by recruiters when they suddenly, like the recruiters work so much to gain their confidence and tell them that they're worthy and that, that British society or Western society doesn't appreciate them and they can get away from all the hardships of money and family if they come across because I've got a big mansion that you can come and live with me. And you get to understand how these girls can suddenly become part of a terror cell and then be manipulated and abused within it. It's chilling. It's a gripping insight into the world and it's effectively played by the computer recording approach. Thoroughly recommend it. It's on a very limited cinema release across the UK at the moment. If you've got a chance to get it, get to see it, go see it. If not, wait until it's on streaming and settle down and watch it at home. Sounds interesting. I'm intrigued by that one. That's it for our reviews. Andy, what's coming up over the next uh, week or so? Uh, busy times at the cinemas this coming weekend with Paw Patrol. We've also got Free Guy. We've got Don't Breathe 2. And we've got The Courier. Over on Now TV and Sky, The Synchronic, which is from Justin Benson and Aaron Moorhead. It's a mind-bending, haunting sci-fi starring Jamie Dorman and Anthony Mackie. We talked about it weeks and weeks back. So this is one that hopefully, if it's a Sky, if it's got the Sky original tag on it, hopefully it's a good one. Um, Netflix sees Beckett, which has John David Washington becoming the target of a manhunt after a devastating accident. And... Obviously, over on Disney+, Plus, right at this point in time, is the first episode of What If, which we will no doubt talk about in coming episodes. And that's it for this week. But as you know, every week, Andy and I will tell you about our neat things. Things that we've watched, read, seen, heard, played, whatever has stood out for us over the last week is our neat thing. And never to break with tradition, Andy, what has been your neat thing? So my neat thing isn't... 
isn't a particular thing from this past week. Now, let's start the story. Two years ago, we began this little venture. Two years of film-related recording. Starting off fortnightly, moving to weekly during lockdown one, and now regularly, each week, we broadcast on No Barriers Radio, as well as giving the extended version out on the podcast. We've built a flow in the way we chat about film news and reviews, in what we like to think is akin to you, the listener, a sat with a few mates in a pub, having a drink while we're talking about, oh, what we've seen, what we've done this week, and you're enjoying it. And through the process, it's given me a chance to dabble with sound editing and video editing, skills which I feel like I've achieved something in learning. But along the way, it's been the occasional feedback from you guys, the people who tune in regularly to hear us speak in our geeky manner that have made this all worthwhile. You guys out there listening, you're all awesome, and you are all my neat thing for being along with us for this two-year journey. Whether you are listening on the podcast or you're tuning into No Barriers Radio, whether you've only listened to a handful of episodes or you've been here since the beginning, you are what we make this for. You getting some love and some appreciation for our random meanderings in this geeky world that we live in. That is an amazing neat thing and it's been an amazing two-year journey. Here's to the next two years. You know what, Andy? I had another neat thing, and I'm going to leave it on that because I think you've spoken for both of us. It has been a fantastic journey. But something that came across initially out of a, a conversation uh, that we both had, wouldn't it be good for you to, to re- revise the uh, film file idea? Uh, me looking for another way to talk about films other than, than doing it on radio. And it has been an absolute gas. It's made us closer as friends. It's given yeah. us an opportunity. It's, it never feels like a chore doing doing the film file. It's something I look forward to. And in lockdown, and I think we, we've talked about this many times on the show, it, it gave us an opportunity to to keep sane, to, to, keep, uh, to feel current with what was happening in, in the world of film, even in its darkest days, and to still be able to talk about a medium that, that we are just passionate about and, and absolutely love. And, you know, we know we found an audience we want to expand that audience. We want to do more with the film file. Uh, we've had bigger ideas. We'd like to do a, a film file live show, which we, you know, ideas that we're knocking around for our hundredth show. Um, so again, I'll just reiterate what Andy says. Thank you for being a part of the film file family, because we are a family. Um, thank you for supporting us. Tell your friends, hit those subscribe buttons, hit the likes buttons, not out of any, any other, uh, uh, it's not out of, uh, you know, we're, we're, we're desperate for likes. What we want to do is just do more uh, and, and keep FilmFile going uh, and build it up as a brand and, and build up the opportunity to talk to more people, have bigger and better guests and, and, and do something even more exciting. But it's it's always a pleasure doing the film file, even when we're tired, even though we look as though we're running out of time. The fact that it's <laughs> now on, on No Barriers Radio that just brings us to a whole different audience and we just want to keep going with that. So um, I'm completely in agreement with Andy. That's my neat thing as well for this week. And that's it for this week. We'll be back with another film file next week. But before you go, I'll see you later, Andy Meekin. You are, you complete me. <laughs>